Several weeks ago, we started looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians, and in the 22 years that I've been preaching, this is the first time I've had the, the privilege to actually go through the book from start to finish. I've spoken on plenty of things from the book of 1 Thessalonians, but this is the first time going from start to finish, and so I've enjoyed just even my study time going through uh, the, the preparation time and, and all that's involved in, in, uh, in preparing for, for each week. Uh, but also, one of the things that's really been striking me as I've been uh, going through the book of First Thessalonians just in my own time is how lovingly confrontational the book can be. Now, the church at Thessalonica was not a church that is known for having all sorts of great problems. They certainly had their issues, but they weren't known for having uh, great problems. It seemed to be that they were progressing in faith rather rapidly in the midst of adverse circumstances. And you could see a lot of joy in Paul's comments, a lot of joy in his words as he's talking to the church. But he's also one of those people. I, so I have this theory. This is how I'll phrase this. I have this theory. This is how you can know your true friends in this earth. You ready? All right, and you could, you could quote me on this. This is how you know if someone's your true friend. A true friend will tell you if you have food on your face or something on your nose, right? A true friend will tell you that. Someone that's not your friend will just let you go all day with that there and not even be aware of it, right? A true friend is the type of person you can ask, do I have something on my face that doesn't belong here? And this is the kind of relationship the Apostle Paul, in my opinion, had with the church at Thessalonica. It was loving. It was encouraging. It was genuine friendship, it was genuine camaraderie, but he was also the type of person that loved them enough to tell them, hey, you took a big bite of that sandwich and you've got mustard all up your cheek. It's just there. I'm going to be the one that tells you. And so the chapter we're looking at today, or the portion of the chapter that we're looking at today, is one of those chapters where he challenges them to make sure that they've wiped their face off. And basically, when you look at this, there's a, a kind of a primary question that's being asked here as uh, we look at this portion of Scripture, and that's this. Are you pursuing a life that pleases God? Are you pursuing a life that pleases God? That's what he's challenging the Thessalonians to pursue, a life that pleases God. And he explains what that kind of life looks like. And he doesn't hold back. You're going to see he does not hold back as he, as he addresses this subject. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at a small section of this chapter. We're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 8, and uh, we'll spend two more weeks in this chapter in the coming weeks. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 1, and this is what it says. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, 
but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture today and to see these things that you share through the Apostle Paul to us. Lord, we want to be people who please you with our lives. We, we want to be people who please you in all areas of our lives. And we're grateful for the things that we're challenged with as we look at this portion of Scripture. We pray that they wouldn't just be words on a page to us, that they wouldn't be just the type of thing that we read about or think about for a brief time but never really put into action. We pray, Lord, that immediately upon seeing these things and hearing these things and reading these things, that we would apply them to our day-to-day walk with you and that our lives would be changed as a result of your power at work within us. Lord, we commit this time to your care, and we thank you for speaking to us now through your word, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier this week, we were having a discussion with the, the teens in the youth group, and the actual discussion, uh, and I don't believe any of this is on accident, the actual discussion ended up coming around to this very subject that we're looking at today, the idea of what it means to please God. And so we asked them, all right, well, how is God primarily pleased? And we wanted to hear some of the answers that they gave. And you would not be surprised by some of the answers that were shared. They were thoughtful answers. But the, and we also discovered this was kind of a difficult question for some of them to answer. And even though the you know, thoughtful answers were being given, uh, and they were giving some answers that probably seemed right to them at first, the more we dug into it, the more several of them began to realize that they were missing the deeper point of what the Lord has communicated in Scripture about what it actually looks like to please Him. So have you ever wrestled with the question, am I primarily living to please God, or is my primary concern to please myself? You ever wrestled with that? I think that's something I've wrestled with. Am I I living to please God, or is this a decision I'm making, or an action I'm taking that really is all about pleasing myself? I think the vast majority of humanity lives to please themselves. I think that that's the primary goal in most people's lives, to please themselves. I think that that's primarily what many people are focused on. And I hope it's not true, but I also know that it's possible that there are many church-attending Christians that could be in that same exact boat, that if they were introspective and honest with themselves, they might have to say, yeah, you know what, I know that my life should be focused on pleasing God, but primarily I'm focused on pleasing myself. So do we know what God wants, or do we know what the nature of pleasing God actually looks like? In the book of Hebrews, and I'm just going to read something very brief from Hebrews for us, we're told something vital that I think we should commit to heart. Even if we don't remember the exact verse and all the details, there's a concept here in Hebrews that I just want to read for us. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11.6. He makes this comment. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. That an interesting statement? Let me read it again, and there's more after it. But he says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. So that, may, that means that as valuable as obedience is, and obedience certainly is valuable, that if it isn't undergirded with faith in Jesus Christ, it cannot please God. Our obedience needs to be the fruit of our faith in Christ. 
Because obedience that springs forth from faith is genuinely pleasing to God. It's evidence of our communion with Christ. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Luke Humphrey. Luke Humphrey wrote an article some years ago that I came across recently, and the article was called The Pleasure of Pleasing God. And it was just a brief article about how it's actually pleasurable to please God. But listen to one statement that he makes in that article. He says, our communion with Christ is dynamic. Communion increases and decreases. If you are walking in habitual sin, your relationship with God may feel dry. If you are walking in regular obedience, your relationship with God may feel full. If you seek to please God, to find your joy in what He delights in, then your communion with God will be rich. If you seek to please yourself at the expense of God's pleasure, then your communion will be dull. I like that statement, or that series of statements. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 8, which we just read together a moment ago, and we'll look at a a piece at a time here, you have the Apostle Paul speaking with the church at Thessalonica about the concept of pleasing God through obedience that's the byproduct of a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. So the question for us today is this, are we pursuing a life that pleases God? Well, I think this passage helps us answer that question. And there's a series of questions that I think are valuable for us to ask when we're wrestling with this subject in our own lives. And the first is this, and it comes right from what Paul says here in this passage. But the question is, do you know the instruction of Christ? Do you know the instruction of Christ? Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then he says this, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now let me pause there for just a moment. Earlier this week I bought a new gadget. Now I don't I don't buy many new gadgets, but a couple times a year I'll buy I'll buy something. And usually it's something in the realm of electronics that I think will be helpful or or useful for one of my hobbies, but I actually have the gadget on me right now. And I don't know because I'm wearing a dark shirt, so you could probably see something that looks like a battery right up here uh, on, on you know, my lapel. Earlier this week, I bought a, digital, a new digital voice recorder. So I've discovered that quite a lot of people are accessing the podcast of the messages uh, from the church. Last month, uh, 3,349 people downloaded the messages. And I thought, all right, well, if 3,349 people are downloading the messages, uh, I think we owe it to them to always seek to improve the quality of what we're we're producing. So I I started researching, okay, how can we produce better better quality audio? And I found some good articles that recommended that I buy a digital voice recorder that fits in my pocket. So it's in my back pocket. And I thought, all right, great. I got the digital voice recorder. I ordered it. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to make a good recording. But then I saw another article that said, well, if you really want it to work well, you need to buy an omnidirectional lavalier mic to go with it. And I was like, okay, noted. Omnidirectional lavalier mic that I wish was just black, okay? It looks like a battery to to me, right? I tested it out. It it worked really well. Um, But I was like, all right, so I got this omnidirectional mic, and I've got this digital voice recorder. I've got these two new gadgets, and um, I want them to work well. 
But I'm looking at it and I thought, all right, this mic can twist in different ways. It can go sideways, it could go vertical, it could go whichever way. And I thought, well, which way is it supposed to go? Like, do it, how do I clip it on? Why is it horizontal like this? It looks different. And it's got a left channel and a right channel. And so I read the directions. And the direction said, put it horizontal because then the left channel and the right channel will pick up equally. And I thought, noted, horizontal. And then I looked at the voice recorder and I thought, all right, it's mostly simple, looks pretty easy to figure out, but there's all these abbreviations on different buttons here that I don't know what they did, what they do. And so I read the directions, and the direction says, this button does this, and this button does this, and this button does this, and I tested it all out, and it all worked, and I was really grateful, and so if for some reason I goofed anything up later this afternoon when I go to edit the podcast, I'm going to be very disappointed because I, I read everything I could read, I tested it all out, but it all worked in practice. Good directions, good instructions help you make good decisions in all areas of life, whether it be figuring out a new gadget or whether it be making spiritual decisions that have eternal consequences. And so here, when the Apostle Paul was among the people of Thessalonica, he gave them good instruction. He gave them sound teaching, gave them good instruction. He told them who Christ is. He told them what Christ had done for them and what Christ continues to do in the present. He made it very clear. He also encouraged them to follow Christ's example and to listen to Christ's teaching. And I think that we could all agree that this was wise counsel for Christians who were new in the faith and wanted to grow in their faith, and so you have the Apostle Paul passing that on to them and encouraging them to value these things, to value the teaching of Christ, to listen to the instruction that Christ was giving to them through Paul and through Silas, and to implement it in their day-to-day life. And likewise, I think that this is the counsel that we would be most likely to give somebody else if they asked us for advice on how to grow as a Christian. I think we give the same exact counsel. I think most of, one of the most important things that, that we would probably stress would be, all right, do this. Get a copy of the Bible and read it. Get a copy of the Bible and read it. And then try out what the Lord's teaching you there. Put it into practice. Try it out so your heart can become more and more convinced that what he says is true. Is that not what happens in our day-to-day lives? We actually read it and try it out. What ends up happening is you discover that every single thing that the Lord told you was true and everything that he said would work, works. And your faith deepens and it develops and it matures. But is this counsel we're personally abiding by? It's the kind of counsel I think we would give people, but is it the, the kind of counsel we're abiding by? Do we know personally the instruction of Christ? Earlier this week, I got a text from my uncle. Really appreciate my uncles. And uh, my uncle asked me a question. He had a question about the timeline, the timeline of events in Genesis chapter 4. And he said, hey, I've got a question for you. I'm writing something up, and I just have a quick question about the timeline of what I'm seeing here with the names and the people and the events that are listed in Genesis 4. And so I texted him a couple quick responses, but then I thought, all right, this needs a phone call. And so I called, and we talked about it. I thought, I, get, I lose patience with long texting. Texting is for yes, no, and what time you'll be home, right? That's texting for me. You know, after that, I I, I jump right to the phone call. So we talked about that, and it was an edifying conversation. We talked for about 12, 13 minutes about Genesis 4 and then into Genesis 5. And then a couple days later, 
My father had a question for me about a parable in Luke chapter 19. And he said, hey, I'm going to be sharing something with uh, my church board, and I have a question for you about this parable. And so we chatted about Luke chapter 19. We talked about that parable. And then two days after that, someone in our church asked if they could just get together and meet face to face. And I said, sure, when do you want to meet? And uh, he said, Let, let's meet on Friday. And so on Friday afternoon, we got together and we, we met. And he said, all right, this is something I've been reading in Scripture for a long time. And he said, it's something that I haven't been personally implementing, but now I want to personally implement this. And we talked about what it looks like to personally implement the very thing that he had been reading about for a long time in the Scriptures. And it was a very encouraging and edifying series of conversations that I was blessed to be able to be part of throughout the course of the week. And my point in bringing those examples up is to say that if we are not well acquainted with the instruction of Christ, if we're not well acquainted with the instruction of Christ, there are decisions we won't make and patterns and practices that we won't implement because we have no clue that God's ever even said anything about them. We're not well acquainted with the instruction of Christ. There are things that we want, it would just be, we'll just walk in ignorance. We'll have no idea that God even brought those subjects up or, or even addresses these things in Scripture because we'll just, we'll just be ignorant of them. We've never read them. We've never applied them. We've never bothered to, to internalize them. And it's interesting because when we're talking about this idea of, of pleasing God, willful ignorance of the truths that the Lord has handed to us on a silver platter that is not pleasing to God. Willful ignorance of the truth he's made readily available to us, it doesn't please him. But joyful reception of his life-giving word is pleasing to him. And so you see the Apostle Paul addressing this concept with the church at Thessalonica saying, listen, as an outpouring of your genuine faith in Christ, continue to mature, continue to internalize the instruction that the Lord's given you, continue to grow in your understanding of it. That's what he's challenging them to do. Then he goes on a little bit further and he says, all right, here's the next thing. Are you willing to practice self-control? Are you willing to practice self-control? Look what he says in verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. We're going to come back to that word in a moment. But he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Let's pause there for just a moment. So I would say, and my wife will probably laugh at this statement, but I would say I am a person of simple tastes. All right? I think, would you agree? All right, she's agreeing but laughing and smiling as, as I say this. I'm a person of simple taste. So that, what that means is this. That impacts the kind of cars I drive. <laughs> I don't really drive anything fancy, and I, I really haven't. Um, although I really do dream about getting a Roadster at one point, but I want to get the mortgage paid off first. So if you ever see me driving a Roadster around, that's a good indicator I finally paid off my house, all right? But we'll get to that at some point. <laughs> but, you know, pretty plain cars, um, pretty basic clothing, nothing fancy, and very simple things to eat. 
The things that I like to eat really are not cultured at all. You know, I'm, I, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous and kind of embarrassing, and I don't even think I want to be introduced to new foods. I already know what I like. I don't care anymore. Like, you don't have to introduce me to any new foods. I already know the foods that I like. It is the complete opposite of my wife. It's the complete opposite of my daughter. They love new stuff. They love all kinds of creative things. Well, um, there are several places locally here that I enjoy eating lunch. There's three places on my rotation. And for years and years and years, I just kind of rotate between the three. Every day for lunch, I'd go and grab food at one of these places. They're all convinced that I'm mad at them right now. They're all convinced that I'm mad at them. Because I decided that one of my goals for this year was that, and I I wanted to do this for health reasons, but also financial reasons. I thought, all right, I need to stop eating lunch out as much as I do. Because I was pretty much doing that every day. And I know I'm eating way too many calories and high cholesterol foods when I'm doing that. And I also know when I look at it, if I'm honest with myself, it wastes a lot of money. And so I thought, all right, how about this? Why don't you just treat yourself one day a week to going out for lunch, not every day? And so for the past six weeks, that's what I've been doing. One day, sometimes I don't even use the one day. So I have credit. So there might be one week where I just binge. And I say, I've got all this credit. I haven't even used it. All right. Maybe not. I shouldn't do that. But then a few months ago, I started this with coffee, too, because in addition to going out and grabbing lunch every day, I'd always go out and grab a coffee, too. So it's lunch and coffee every day. And so four months ago, I decided, all right, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to brew my own coffee, and I'm gonna, I have a really good thermal mug that keeps it hot for a long time. It'll keep it hot all day if I just want to sip at it. And so for four months, I've been brewing my own coffee. So Duncan's mad at me or thinks that I'm mad at them, and my three favorite local establishments that I know that I go there all the time. And so I know the people that, that work there. And I, I popped into one of them recently. And they're like, is something wrong? We don't see you anymore. Why don't we see you anymore? It's like, hey, you're seeing me now, right? Developing a new habit. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to just kind of improve in a couple areas I need to improve in. But when you're trying to develop a new habit, such as that, it takes some internal motivation And it takes self-control. You kind of have to have both. You have to have the internal motivation, and you have to have self-control. But it can be extremely difficult to practice self-control when you're surrounded by people who don't share your values or who don't share your goals. And it can be something small, like whether or not you buy coffee out or you make it at home, or, or, or it could be something on a bigger scale like what Paul is talking about here in this portion of Scripture. The culture in Thessalonica, so picture these people living in this city. The culture in that city, like many ancient cities, the culture was not Christian in its priorities, right? All sorts of vices, all sorts of vices were practiced there, uh, including the vice of sexual immorality. It was rampant. It was all over the place. That concerned Paul. Because he wanted these new believers who were living in that city, he wanted them to, to, to put their new faith into practice, but he also knew it was going to be hard to develop new habits in a context that really wanted them to embrace their old values. And that was the dilemma that this group would certainly be in and something that certainly concerned the Apostle Paul as he was trying to encourage and, and trying to teach them. Now, are we willing in our era and in our city to practice self-control? Are we in a similar spot to, to what was taking place here? This scripture tells us that God's goal for our lives is that we, that we grow in holiness, 
Scripture refers to the process we're being brought through here as sanctification. Are you familiar with that term, this idea of sanctification? It's the process that the Holy Spirit is facilitating in our lives. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, what the Holy Spirit does is he, he, he starts helping you to grow in holiness. Over the course of your life, gradually, you grow in holiness. You learn to see things the way God sees things. You learn to value things the way God values things. You grieve over the same things that break God's heart. It's a process of growth that we, grow, that we go through as the Holy Spirit facilitates it in our lives. Sanctification, this process of growing in holiness. And it's interesting to me, when I look at this portion of Scripture, because there's many issues that Paul could have singled out among the Thessalonians when he was encouraging them here to practice self-control. But he chose the issue of sexual immorality to hone in on. Why do, you, why do you suppose he chose that issue in particular to hone in on? Well, I think for most people, that's the most difficult passion to get under control. And so he thought, you know what, let's just go big. You know, I'm not going to talk about the, the smaller. Let's just go big. Let's just talk about the big issue, right? For most people, that's the most difficult passion to get under control. And it also has many far-reaching and devastating consequences when it's left unbridled. Sexual activity outside the bounds of heterosexual marriage grieves the heart of God. That's very clear when you see that all throughout Scripture. And when we're conscious of the fact that immorality is a dishonor to Him, yet we practice it anyway, it carries the same effect as walking up to Christ, slapping Him in the face, and telling Him, shut up. That's exactly what we're doing when we look at what the Word of God says, and he makes it abundantly clear that this is the pattern and desire and the heart of God for your life, and yet you choose to go in another way. It's no different than walking up to Christ, physically slapping him in the face and telling him, stop talking to me. I don't have any interest in hearing what you have to say to me about this subject. I'm not interested. I don't want to hear it. I prefer my passions over your counsel. The phrase that Paul's using here for sexual immorality in this particular passage, it actually comes from the Greek word pornea. Does that sound familiar? Pornea. That's the Greek word for sexual immorality that's being used here. Now, it's a general term for adultery and fornication and other forms of sexual sin, but it's the word that we get pornography from. And Paul knew all about the lives that these Christians had been rescued out of. He knew all sorts of things that they had once indulged in, and pornea was one of their guiding passions before they came to know Christ, just as it was a guiding passion of the culture around them. And Paul did not want them to fall back into what Christ had now lifted them out of. He's saying, I don't want you to go back into the very thing that you've been lifted out of. You've been rescued from it. Don't go back to it. So what about us in our context? What about us in the midst of our culture? What about professing believers in Jesus Christ? Are we willing to practice self-control that the Holy Spirit empowers us to exercise, or will we basically spend the rest of our lives slapping Christ in the face and saying, this is an area you're not allowed to talk to me about because I choose my preference over your heart. I don't care that it grieves you. I don't care that you want something different from me. I choose this over you. In effect, when we choose anything else over Christ, what we're saying is, this is my God. You are not yet. Maybe someday you will be. But for now, this is what I allow to dominate me. This is what I worship. This is what I bow my knees to. Not you yet. Maybe someday. But for now, it's this. And so Paul is confronting with love. 
This is the whole concept of saying, listen, you might have some mustard on your cheek. You might have some food on your face. Look, I love you, but I'm going to tell you something that a true friend tells you. Something else that Paul brings up here, and we'll just spend a quick moment on this, but I want to address it because he brings it up. In verse 6, he brings up this idea of, of the Lord avenging sin. Look at what that says. It says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. Now, one of the, um, one of the greatest blessings and one of the most challenging responsibilities that the Lord has entrusted to me is the privilege of raising children. I love being a dad. I enjoy it. I'm also grateful that my children have demented um, senses of humor like their father. Uh, it makes for a very fun environment to raise them in, right? But apart from the joking, I want to, to give them good counsel. I want to give them good advice. And one of the things that the Lord made abundantly clear to me years ago that I think has been an immense help is this. There are plenty of times when you're a parent and you need to correct behavior. You know, you're always correcting behavior. Hey, you know, we, we wash our hands. Hey, you know, careful, you got to look before you cross here. Hey, you know, this. Hey, this is how you handle your finances. Hey, this is how you speak to adults. Hey, this is how you treat people, et cetera, et cetera. We're always correcting behavior, and that's certainly important, but there's something that goes one level deeper than that, that the Lord impressed upon my heart years ago, and that was this. Yes, keep correcting behavior, but make sure that in the process, you're speaking to their conscience. Develop their conscience. Speak to their conscience. Lasting change is more likely to, to take place when we model and communicate to the head, to the hands, and to the heart. So speak to their conscience. Don't just talk to their hands saying don't touch or don't do. That's important. Don't just talk to their head, but also make sure you communicate why. Speak to the heart. Develop the conscience. Isn't that what the Lord does when we read his word? Isn't that what he's doing for us? He's not just saying don't touch or don't do or don't. He's appealing to your conscience. He's appealing to my conscience. And so as a parent, one of the things that he made it abundantly clear to me is you're training your children. It's like, make sure you're appealing to, to their conscience. It's not just about slapping the hand. It's also about appealing to the soul, appealing to the heart. And you have the Apostle Paul following that pattern here as he's dealing with the Thessalonian Christians. He wanted to make it clear to the Thessalonians that the Lord sees what we do and sees how we treat one another. His eyes, when you look at what he says here in verse 6, he's basically saying the Lord's eyes are always upon us. And he will intervene on behalf of those who are being hurt or taken advantage of. The Lord sees and he will intervene on their behalf. He will avenge sin and he will not shy from disciplining his children in order to bring their lives back in line with his will and his intention for them. And so Paul, you know, Paul's addressing this here, and he's saying, listen, as you live your life, live with the understanding that the Lord is seeing everything that's going on, and he takes up the cause of those who get treated poorly. And there's one other thing that Paul brings up in this portion of Scripture, all under this umbrella of this idea of pleasing God. And I'll just phrase it like this. What has God called you to do. What has God called you to do? Look at what it says in verses 7 and 8. It says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So you have, as, as, as Paul reinforced these truths, he wanted the, the Thessalonians to understand more and more and more about God's calling for their lives. So he stressed that God hasn't called his children to indulge in impurity. We're called to embrace holiness. And if we, if we choose to ignore this fact, we're not just ignoring our pastors who taught us or our teachers who instructed us or our parents who modeled these things for us. We're actually disregarding God who has given us his Holy Spirit to point us in the direction of all truth. And he empowers us to live out our faith in the midst of a dark world. He doesn't call you or me to try and rely on our own strength as we live out this faith. He empowers us through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to live out our faith in the midst of a dark world. Now, let me say this, because I know I only have a few more moments. I don't care how far you've run from God in the past. Or how many times in the past you've ignored his voice to do whatever you wanted. Don't care about that. Uh, at, at this moment, as far as I'm concerned, that's ancient history. Right? The Thessalonians had their backstories. I think all of us have our backstory. We all have moments in the past where we'd say, yeah, not too proud of that moment. Or not too pleased with that decision. Prefer not to talk about that one, et cetera, et cetera. We all have a backstory. The Thessalonians that Paul was writing these things to, they had a backstory. All of us do. What I do care about, however, is this the present and the future. The present and the future, today and tomorrow. How clear has God's calling on your life become to you? How clear is it in your mind? How clear is it in your heart? Are you hearing the type of things he's trying to tell us from this particular passage? Let me read to you something that at first will seem completely unrelated to what we're talking about. But I promise you it has very much to do with what we're talking about here. This is something that David Rohr, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, he wrote this some time ago. I'm just going to read his words instead of paraphrasing it. But he said this, The motorhome has allowed us to put all the conveniences of home on wheels. A camper no longer needs to contend with sleeping in a sleeping bag, cooking over a fire, or handling water from a stream. Now he can park a fully equipped home on a cement slab in the midst of a few pine trees and hook up to a water line, a sewer line, and electricity. And he said, one motorhome I saw recently had a satellite dish attached to the top. There's no more bother with dirt, no more smoke from the fire, no more drudgery of walking to the stream. Now it's possible to go camping and never even have to go outside. He said, we buy a motorhome with the hope of seeing new places, of getting out into the world, and yet we deck it out with some of the furnishings as in our living room. Thus, nothing really changes. We may drive to a new place and set ourselves in new surroundings, But the newness goes unnoticed, for we've only carried along our old setting. And then he says one more thing. The adventure of new life in Christ begins when the comfortable patterns of the old life are left behind. I want to read his statement one more time. He says, the adventure of new life in Christ begins when the comfortable patterns of the old life 
are left behind. Are you ready to leave the old life behind so that you could experience new life in Christ? Are you ready to pursue a life that doesn't run from God, but by faith pleases God? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to read a portion of scripture like this together today and just think about these concepts and the things that you reveal to us in it. Lord, we know that there are all sorts of things that are referenced in this portion of Scripture that are useful for us if we're seeking to live a life that pleases you. We know that it all needs to be undergirded with faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. It all needs to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. None of this can be accomplished in our own strength or in our own merit or in our own effort. This is something we need to fully rely on you for. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be something that we would desire to do that our consciences would be awakened to the type of things that are discussed in this portion of Scripture, that it would matter to us to know that we're pleasing you, that we would find pleasure in pleasing you, that we wouldn't be just another person in, in the, uh, among the billions of people who live on this earth who just live, lives for themselves, Lord. We know that you don't want us to live for ourselves. We know that you don't want us to just live for our own selfish preferences or selfish passions. You want us to have higher aims than that. So, Lord, we're grateful for a, a lovingly confrontational portion of Scripture like we just read together. We know, Lord, that, that this portion of Scripture has the capacity to kind of get behind the surface and to look into some things, some issues of the heart that at times we don't always feel comfortable addressing out loud, but Lord, there are things here that, particularly as you speak about self-control and sexual impurity and what it looks like to live a life of holiness as we walk in sanctification. Lord, we're so grateful for these things, but we also know what a struggle it can be in the midst of a culture that that throws stuff at us all the time, trying to encourage us to go in the exact opposite direction. It's thrown at our kids. It's thrown at us as adults. It's all around in our entertainment. Even, even in subtle things, Lord. You just see it everywhere. Lord, it's very clear what the priority of our era happens to be. It's very clear what the, what the God of our culture happens to be. But we pray that we wouldn't make the gods of this world our gods. We pray that we would worship you, Lord, the true and living God, and that we would live a life with a clear conscience focused on pleasing you through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, that it's impossible to please you any other way. And so we pray that our trust in your Son would be strong, and we pray that as you empower us that we would live out that faith in the midst of every context that you place us in. We know, Lord, that Today, our faith will be tested. We know that tomorrow it'll be tested throughout the course of this week, throughout the course of this month. It will be tested. We know that for a fact, but we're grateful for the fact that you give us your strength and your guidance and your presence to help us in the midst of our seasons of testing. So again, Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thanking you now for the ways in which you empower us, and we pray that we would leave our old life behind and press on to the new life that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.